0: On Sunday night, we had a presidential
1: election that was historic. Samantha Schmidt is the post bureau chief in Bogota. She's been reporting on Colombia's 10th presidential election. And on Sunday, she was with the winning candidate when the results came in.
0: Gustavo Petro won the election, and he will now be the first leftist president that Colombia has had in more than 200 years. It seems like Petro may have thought he was going to win because the campaign managed to get a huge arena for their victory speech that night. It's the Movistar Arena in Bogotá, which is often used for, like, concerts and soccer games. And the stands were packed. And, you know, people were waiting a long time after the results came out for the candidates to come on stage. And when they did, I mean, people just erupted in cheers. There was a massive Colombian flag across the stands in the back. People were kind of lifting up their phones to take photos. You could see the lights all over. You know, at one point, confetti was you know dropped from from above. People were chanting like "Si se pudo, si se pudo." Yes, we did. Yes, we did. At one point, Pedro said something pretty powerful that said, you know. He was going to focus on peace in this country.
2: He es que oh.
0: said, peace means that someone like me can become president and someone like Francia can become vice president. Francia Marquez, who will now be an Afro-Colombian woman as vice president, um, and people around them started cheering, no more war, no more war. this is a victory that not only was unthinkable just a generation ago in Colombia, but it is a remarkable example of a country that has been hard hit by the pandemic, where people are desperate, where poverty levels are incredibly high, and where voters were desperate for something different.
1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, June 22nd. Today, the rise of the new left in Latin America. Sam Schmidt spoke to my colleague, Alahe Azadi, about how a series of unprecedented elections in the region are signaling that U.S. influence might be taking a backseat. Then, later in the show, we'll hear a little bit of the powerful testimony in the January 6th hearings this week.
0: Colombia is the third largest country in Latin America. It is arguably the most important ally of the United States in the region. And it's always been seen as this conservative stalwart in Latin America. It has always been led by either center or right wing leaders. It has been seen as one of the most stable democracies that just is a very reliable partner for the United States, particularly in its efforts to combat The drug trade. And so it raises a lot of questions about what that partnership is going to look like moving forward. But it also could mean a major shift in who's kind of leading the agenda in
2: Latin America. What was it like in Colombia this weekend? And can you tell me about where you went and what you saw, what the feeling and the mood was like there? This was the most violent, tense, election cycle in
0: decades. There had been death threats against both presidential candidates. There's a long history in Colombia of especially leftist candidates being assassinated while running for president. We had just weeks before the first round of the elections, a huge armed strike where a cartel basically shut down more than 100 municipalities in the country. So there had been such a buildup of of fear. And also both sides of the political spectrum had raised concerns about potential electoral fraud. So there was a lot of worry that, you know, maybe after the last presidential Election round, we could see either candidate contest the results, that we could see protests or violence. And the race was incredibly close leading up to Sunday night. Polls were not allowed in the last week, so it was really hard to tell exactly what voters were thinking. But everything was indicating that this was going to be an incredibly tight race and that it could really go either way. But once Sunday came around, it wasn't as close as we expected. It was actually a relatively comfortable lead. The fact that it was not a particularly close race where, you know, it could be contested by either side was really a a huge relief to a lot of Colombians. Because if it had been really close, there was concern that, you know, the loser could question the results. Uh, But what we saw on Sunday night was that right after the results came in, the losing candidate, Rulor Fernandez, immediately conceded on Twitter in a video address, the current president of Colombia, Ivan Duque, pretty immediately congratulated Petro. We saw the whole political establishment embrace his his win. Um, We saw the United States that night congratulate Petro. And so, you know, what we thought was going to be a really uncertain night, a huge potential test for democracy in Colombia ended up coming together really
2: smoothly. Sam, can you tell us a little bit more about Petro? Like, what is his biography, his life story, and his politics?
0: Gustavo Petro is a very well-known figure in this country. He's really represented for so long the left in Colombia. He was the mayor of Bogotá. He has been a senator in recent years. Before that, he was a member of a group called the M-19, which was an urban guerrilla group, a political group that was later demobilized and actually went into a peace agreement with the government and became a political party. And so that was how he first got into politics. And he has run for president three times. Uh, The last time he ran was in 2018 against the current president, Ivan Duque. But he fell short, and a lot of that was because of the resistance against him because there's quite a bit of resistance to the left here, especially because this country is right next door to Venezuela. There's an effort from the right and from the establishment to tie Petro to Venezuela and to say that he's trying to turn the country into Venezuela or Cuba. You know, there's a lot of fear of what, Colombia would look like being led by a leftist president because it's never had it before. And because there are so many examples that are often used to kind of stow fear about the left in Latin America. But, you know, I think what we learned in this election is that that argument, like voters aren't necessarily buying it anymore.
2: Sam, I'm wondering, can you just give me a little bit of context as to how it was possible that we see the first leftist president in Colombia ever? You know, I don't think Petro could have won the presidency if
0: the country hadn't reached its peace accords in 2016. I think that the peace accords that the country established and the entire peace process that has come of that has kind of helped the country reach a. Point of at least working towards reconciliation. And I think that in the past elections have really focused on this question of, you know, how do we overcome this conflict? How do we reach peace with these armed rebel groups? How do we solve this? And so the answer to that has often been with very kind of iron fist, right wing, pro security candidates, you know, people have have gotten fed up with them. And there's kind of room to talk about things other than the conflict now, even though the country is still seeing huge levels of violence across many rural parts of the country. It is kind of reaching a point where they want to focus on other things and that, you know, the day-to-day struggles that people are
2: facing are often having to do with putting food on the table and finding a job. What was it about this moment in particular that caused people to be so hungry for such a drastic change? Like, why was now the time that this happened, that the country elected its first leftist president? President Duque was elected
0: in 2018. And even then, there was a large sector of Colombians that were really wanting something different. And Duque was really a continuation of the conservative political establishment that had been in control here for so long. Like, there was already a lot of discontent with the government even before the pandemic hit. This was already one of the most unequal countries in the region. There was already a really concerning level of unemployment and of informality and of poverty in this country. And then the pandemic hit and it just knocked a huge segment of the population out of the middle class and into poverty. And that was the case across the region. And Latin America was one of the hardest hit regions by the economic consequences of the pandemic. And we saw you know 12 million people kicked out of the middle class just in the first year of the pandemic. And that was particularly true in Colombia. Now in Colombia, nearly half the country is living in poverty and is experiencing some type of food insecurity. We see people, especially young people, feeling frustrated, being unable to find work, unable to afford school, and they're they're feeling... They're feeling restless. They're feeling desperate to find something different. And that's on top of a number of other problems that have plagued this country for generations and that a lot of people felt just got even worse under the Duque administration, including armed groups, including... Coca production, you know, the violence in many rural parts of the country has increased killings of social leaders and of human rights defenders and environmental activists have been some of the worst in the world. So things have just been really bad in this country
2: for a lot of people, and they were desperate for something to change. Let's zoom out for a moment. How does this election fit into what's happening in Latin America more broadly right now? Like, Can you sort of paint a picture of... The politics of the region? What we're seeing right now is a
0: ton of anti-incumbent anger across the region. And this is, as I said, one of the regions that has been hardest hit by the economic assault of the pandemic. And we've seen the impact of that in some in some recent elections, and particularly in Peru, for example, where last year a Marxist former school teacher became president, Pedro Castillo. This year, we had a 36-year-old student activist become president in Chile, Gabriel Boric. And so now the big question is whether we will see a leftist win again in Brazil, the largest country in Latin America, where former president Luis Inacio Lula da Silva is expected to unseat President Bolsonaro in October in their presidential election there. And each of these presidents are incredibly different. But what we do see is that across a lot of these countries this is an attempt by voters to punish the people in power, to kick out the incumbents, to try something different. And because of the governments that were running these countries up until now, that has meant that the left has won. And so, you know, it's it's we have to be careful not to necessarily see this as A leftist swing because, you know, we also could see it go the other way in some countries that have been run by leftists during the pandemic. But for now, what we're seeing is that the left is capitalizing on that anger because they're offering
2: voters something completely different. It would not be wise to say that all of these successful or potentially soon to be successful um, leftist politicians in Latin America all have the same platform and same agenda and same, you know, proposals. But what are there any common threads between what they're promising? When you look at the two newest winners,
0: Boric and Petro, what's interesting about them is that they they in many ways look very different from the leftist president's of the past in Latin America. When you think about Venezuela, for example, it was a, a revolution built off of an oil-rich economy. And Petro was saying, like, we don't want that. We want to break with economies that were built off of extractive industries. We want to build an economy that is protecting the environment, that is combating climate change, that is kind of industrializing agriculture in this country. And and that's, you know, something he has in common with, with Boric, who has also talked about climate change. Both of these candidates have made it an important part of their platform to focus on women, on LGBTQ people, on, in the case of Petro, in large part on Afro and indigenous Colombians, you know, trying to kind of break with what has long been seen as a very machista left in Latin America. And so in that way, they're they're seen as kind of a, a new left, a new form of capturing the the leftist sentiment in Latin America. But then there are also a lot of question marks about whether they're going to take kind of a democratic left approach and, you know, maintain friendly relations with the United States um, or whether they're going to take a more autocratic approach. But for now, it seems like at least in terms of his relationships with other countries and with the United States, people are giving him a chance. You know, immediately after... He spoke the night that he won. He was congratulated by the United States State Department. He ended up speaking with Secretary of State Blinken this week. And, you know, from what came out of those conversations, it seems like the two countries want to continue having a collaborative relationship. They want to work together to tackle climate change and to keep implementing the peace accords in Colombia. So, you know, for now, um, you know, if he does take the approach that, for example, President Boric has taken in in Chile so far, people could see him as a more of a a democratic leftist president in Colombia, as opposed to kind of the autocratic leftist presidents in other countries in the region. But that is very much left to be seen. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: You're in Bogota right now. I'm in Washington, D.C., in the United States. And often there's a tendency when when you're in the United States, perhaps um, to ask this question immediately, like, okay, but what does this mean for the United States? And you know, what I'm hearing from you is that a lot of the motivations that voters had were domestic issues and issues that related to how their quality of life was in their own country, which I think a lot of American voters can relate to. Um, But I am curious, like, what does not just This election in Colombia, but the other leftist leaders coming into power in the region, what does that mean for the relationships between these countries and the United States and the United States' positioning in, in the region?
0: Yeah, I think in terms of the relationship between Colombia and the U.S., this is a very unique 200 year long relationship. Really, no other country in Latin America has had quite as stable and as strong of a partnership with the US. They've gotten billions of dollars in aid from the US over the last many years. The US has been a hugely important partner for them in responding to the conflict, in combating uh, the drug trade here. And so that is all up in the air right now in terms of how that relationship could change. Petro, during his speech, on Sunday night said, you know, it is time for a dialogue across the Americas without exclusions. And he, I think, kind of falls into this um, in line of thinking where, you know, perhaps even with the governments of Venezuela and, and Cuba, there needs to be open discussion and uh, in some cases, you know, collaboration. And, you know, he talks about trying to establish a progressive alliance with Boric and if Lula wins with Lula in Brazil. And, you know, he sees that as kind of, you know, a united front that could work together to tackle climate change, for example. And talking to analysts this week, I get the sense that, you know, if there's a, if they're successful, if Lula wins and if you know, Petro is successful in these plans, that could actually mean that Latin America is really taking the lead in the hemisphere and that they are pushing forward their own agenda and that the U.S. might take a back seat in that. You know, they might be kind of left on the sidelines of this. It seems like the U.S. is heading in one direction and Latin America is heading in the other. And part of that comes from, I think, uh, you know, the U.S. has really seen Latin America through a lens of competition in recent years, competition with Russia, competition with China, and they've been preoccupied also. They've been focused on Ukraine, on Iran and North Korea, on many other regions of the world, but not on Latin America. And so I think that has kind of left a vacuum here and could continue to leave a vacuum here at a time when these countries might be working together in ways they
1: haven't been before. Samantha Schmidt is the Bogota bureau chief for The Post. This segment was produced by Emma Telkoff. After the break, the mother and daughter who devoted their lives to democracy and are now in hiding after attacks from former President Trump and his allies. We'll be right
2: back.
4: monarchmoney.com slash podcast.
1: Before we go, one more thing about this week's January 6th hearing.
3: This turned my life upside down. Um, I no longer give out my business card. I don't transfer calls. I um, don't want anyone knowing my name.
1: That's the voice of Wandrea Shea Moss. She is a former election worker in Georgia. And on Tuesday, she testified at the fourth public hearing before the House committee investigating January 6th.
3: I haven't been anywhere um, at all. I've gained about 60 pounds. I just don't do nothing anymore. I don't want to go anywhere. I second-guess everything that I do. It's affecting my life in a a major way, in every way, all because of lies. —
1: Up until this point in the January 6th hearings, we have heard from political appointees and people within Trump's orbit and Capitol Police. But Tuesday's testimony was more personal, about how people's lives were upended just from doing their jobs. And the testimony that everyone has been talking about since then came from Shea Moss. She handled voter applications and absentee ballot requests. And she talked about how much she loved her job and her ability to help people vote. But she and her family became targets of President Trump and his campaign lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, during their pressure campaign to overturn the 2020 election. Giuliani publicly claimed that Moss and her mother, Ruby Freeman, a fellow poll worker in Fulton County, had rigged the vote count.
0: Tape earlier in the day of Ruby Freeman and Shay Freeman-Moss and one other gentleman, quite obviously surreptitiously passing around USB ports as if they are vials of heroin or cocaine. I mean, it's, outsta- it's, it's obvious to anyone who's a criminal investigator or prosecutor, they are engaged in surreptitious illegal activity again that day.
1: After that claim came out, everything changed for Shay Moss. Her Facebook account was inundated with messages. Congressman Adam Schiff asked her about them.
3: It was just a lot of horrible things there.
4: And those horrible things, that they include threats?
3: Yes a lot of threats, um, wishing death upon me, um, telling me that you know, I'm, I'll be in jail with my mother and saying things like, be glad it's 2020 and not
4: 1920. Yeah. Were a lot of these threats and, and vile comments racist in nature?
3: A lot of them were racist. A lot of them were just hateful, um, yes, sir. In one of
4: the videos we just watched, Mr. Giuliani accused you and your mother of passing some sort of USB drive to each other. Uh, what was your mom actually handing you
3: on that video? A ginger mint.
1: Trump also brought up Shea Moss and her mom, Ruby Freeman, in that infamous call with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Congressman Schiff played a portion of it during the hearing. —
2: We
4: had uh, at least 18,000 that's on tape. We had them counted very painstakingly. 18,000 voters uh, having to do with uh, Ruby Freeman. She's a vote scammer, a professional vote scammer and hustler. — Donald Trump attacked you and your mother using her name 18 times on that call. 18 times. Ms. Wass, can you describe uh, what you experienced listening to former President Trump attack you and your mother in a call with the Georgia Secretary of State?
3: I felt horrible. I felt like it was all my fault. Like, if I would have never decided to be an elections worker, like, I could have done anything else. But that's what I decided to do, and now, People are lying and spreading rumors and lies and attacking my mom, I'm her only child. Going to my grandmother's house, I'm her only grandchild. And and my kid, it's just, um, I felt so bad. I, I just felt bad for my mom and I felt horrible for picking this job and being the one that always wants to help and always there never missing out one election. I just felt like it was it was my fault for putting my family in this situation.
1: The threats that Shay Moss and her mom received drove them into hiding. Here's Ruby Freeman in a videotape testimony.
5: Now I won't even introduce myself by my name anymore. I get nervous when I bump into someone I know in the grocery store who says my name. I'm worried about who's listening. I get nervous when I have to give my name for food orders. I'm always concerned of who's around me. I've lost my name and I've lost my reputation. I've lost my sense of security, all because a group of people starting with number 45 and his ally, Rudy Giuliani, decided to scapegoat me and my daughter, Shay to push their own lies about how the presidential election was stolen.
1: In the year and a half since the 2020 election, Shay Moss quit her job. In fact, she said in her testimony that everyone who was captured in that video posted by Giuliani has since left their positions. And for Ruby Freeman, she says that her faith in American democracy has been shaken.
5: Do you know how it feels to have the President of the United States to target you? The President of the United States is supposed to represent every American. Not to target one, but he targeted me, Lady Ruby, a small business owner, a mother, a proud American citizen who stand up to help Fulton County run an election in the middle of the pandemic.
1: The January 6th hearings will continue on Thursday. This story was produced by Charlotte Freeland. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show is mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.